This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here of the Axis. Uh, and happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to y'all. Um, I'm a daddy. I've got four kids, uh, soon to be 18, 16, 14, and 9, uh, JJ, Bethany, Caleb, and Elsie Grace. Uh, love y'all, and it's a blast being your dad. Um, it's a joy that they're here with me. Um, thank you also for joining us in live stream, those who are tuning in this morning. Um, I love you guys. Uh, to many, uh, I, I look at you as sons and daughters, uh, to some, and really to all the rest, uh, brothers and sisters and family. Uh, but I love y'all, and I'm pulling for you. I'm glad that you're with us this morning and tuning in. Go ahead and grab a Bible uh, and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 is where uh, week 101 in our study uh, through the gospel of St. Luke. And this, this morning, the, our text has us uh, looking into the very core event of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest rival uh, or competitor or threat, I guess you could say, to the gospel isn't atheism. Uh, it is perhaps religion. And there's a big difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and religion. You could summarize it or think of it this way. Religion is, is our work to make things right between us and God. But the gospel is God's work to make things right between us and God. And by religion, I'm referring mainly to, but not limited to, legalism and moralism. Legalism uh, is the belief that I'm righteous through not doing bad things. Those are bad, don't do those things. Moralism is saying, well, I'm righteous by doing these good things, by doing these good things. And it's finding our worth and our value and our righteousness and our ability to do it better than other people. And it also uh, creates a judgmental spirit when we're uh, leaning into our self-righteousness through legalism, moralism, and religion. It creates a self-righteousness that judges others who can't keep up the way we can. They can't obey perfectly like we can, all right? And it's basing our reconciliation with God on our own work and on our own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his work for us. So a way of thinking about religion, the gospel, religion tells us I obey, therefore I must be accepted. Look at my resume. Look at how good I've been doing. But the gospel says I'm accepted, Therefore, I obey. Look at the resume of Jesus, what he's done in my place. Religion, we often are, are working for a response, right? It's like uh, back in the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet uh, with the followers of Baal, uh, and they're calling down their God from heaven, and they're working really hard. They even start cutting themselves, and they're screaming out. They're, they're trying to get their God to respond. They're dancing. They're throwing stuff. It's, this is a picture of us in religion. We do this in many ways, but we're working, doing things for a response from God, right? But the gospel is working in response to something that's already taking place. It's not working for a response, but it's working in response to something that Christ has done for us. 
And now on this Father's Day, I like to think of it like this. Religion says, I messed up and my dad's going to kill me. But the gospel says, I messed up. I need to call dad. That's the difference. If you've heard the gospel, if you've heard about Jesus, you at least know that there was a man named Jesus that died. But why did he die? What happened through his death? And why does the death of a revolutionary 2,000 years ago make any difference or impact in my life today? We're going to look into this a little bit. So context where we are in chapter 23 in our passage for today, Jesus is in Roman custody. Following uh, late that previous night, early in the morning, he was washing the disciples' feet, uh, giving his disciples the very first communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, He's been betrayed by by Judas, one of his disciples. He's been arrested by Roman guards and the the Jewish Pharisees and religious leaders. He's been abandoned by all of his disciples. In fact, denied three times by the leader of his disciples, Peter. He'd been taken to the Jewish high priest's home, Caiaphas. He's been blindfolded, mocked, beaten, and blasphemed by the guards. He's then sent to Pilate, the Roman overseer. And then to Herod, who was over Pilate, he was mocked and beaten. He's then sent back to Pilate. And then he's scourged within an inch of his life. All this is with no just trial. All of it is based upon bogus charges. And you see the fury of the religious people on full display. And they're led by the religious leaders. Pilate offers to release Jesus or Barabbas, because around this time, around Passover, he would release a prisoner each year. Really, the the one who, the the loudest crowd wanting release, the the voices, he would try to free that particular prisoner. And so he chose the very worst prisoner that he could think of, Barabbas, a murderer, known murderer, um, just a nuisance to all in the Holy Land. Uh, You want me to release this guy? Normally, he would pick the best prisoner. He picks the worst. You release Barabbas or Jesus, thinking, this is going to get myself out of the situation. <laughs> Whew. All right, tell me. And they're like, Barabbas. He's like, what? Shocked. He would have never offered that as an option had he thought that they were actually going to choose Barabbas. Because Barabbas is just going to hurt more people. So he releases Barabbas, which is a picture of us. Each one of us going free, Christ being held back in our place. So Jesus is led away to be crucified under the direct order of Rome and Pilate because of the relentless demands of the religious crowd. Then we find ourselves in verse 26. That was establishing some context where we are. So follow along. Verse 26, chapter 23 of Gospel of St. Luke. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, an African man, who was coming in from the country, most likely observing Passover, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. With the brutality of crucifixion that the Romans were just, I mean, they had perfected the art of crucifixion. With the brutality of crucifixion, the criminal would often, if not always, be dragged away, kicking and screaming, pulled away, right? And there were words in in Greek for being dragged away, being pulled away with much struggle. But Jesus, we're told here, by all accounts, 
of the gospels, the four gospels, he was led away. He willingly gave up his life to save yours. 700 years earlier, 800 years earlier, this reminds us of what we find in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, speaking of the coming Messiah, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's led away. And after the near death beating, torturing experience that Jesus had to endure, he makes his way to Golgotha the place of the skull, to Calvary. Verse 27, there, there followed with him a great multitude of people and of, of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So in the midst of this horrific and pain-filled, traumatic end-of-life experience that Jesus is enduring, we learn now that he turns and he teaches his followers. He encourages them, comforts them, guides them, and warns them, those who are following him. He says this in verse 28, but turning to them... 28, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. It's going to get really rough. For behold, the days are coming when they're going to say, blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and breasts that never nursed. You'll be thankful for not bringing children into this world. It's going to get so bad. And then they'll begin to say even to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? The women are weeping. The women are mourning because the death of this innocent man. But their sorrow is going to be multiplied. Speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, their sorrow will grow when anguish comes upon all. Not just the mourners, but those who are celebrating the death of Christ. The crowd that's so stoked about Jesus finally being crucified and executed. There's going to be sorrow as anguish comes across all these as Jerusalem and Judea suffer for their rejection of the Messiah, the one sent by God to them, the cornerstone, Jesus. And in quoting uh, Hosea 10.8 there, when he says, fall on us, cover us, he's, he's referencing back in the Old Testament where Israel cries out for relief from God's judgment and wrath. Please make it stop. Jesus is telling the women and others that they're going to cry out in a similar way when Jerusalem is punished for their rejection of him. And this would happen in year 70 in a matter of only a few decades. So Jesus here is making his way to the place of his death. And as was common, there were others who were being executed that day. It was rare that you would have one person being crucified. Most often it would happen where there would be up to five or six that were executed on a, on a day of execution. They would wait and kind of do it all at the same time. Now, just three hours earlier, there were two men that would be crucified. But through this ad hoc, ridiculous, bogus trial, there's now three that are going to be executed for their crimes. We learn about these guys in, in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, the soldiers, the criminals, the mockers, and the mourners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And then they cast lots to divide his garments. In the midst of of such agony, in, in the midst of such injustice, the words from this innocent man, Father, forgive them, they don't understand. The poise of Jesus, the love of Christ, the merciful heart of Jesus is on full display right here as he's on the cross, pinned, nailed to this beam of wood, is on full display as he says, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. Now, if you want to see the heart or true colors of someone, see them under pressure. See them in tense situations. It's what we admire about champions in sports. It's what we admire about a wise wartime general. And we see Jesus here. And we see his true colors. When pressed, persecuted, and killed, what comes out? Father, Forgive them. They don't understand. And the people stood by in verse 35 watching, but the rulers scoffed at him even more, saying, well, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Messiah, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. Now, I'd feel like shouting back, I'm saving you. That's why I'm not saving myself. Quit the trash talking. I'm doing this for you. But instead, he asked God to save them. Father, pardon their sin. Forgive their sin. They don't understand. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him, adding agony upon agony, this sour wine, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. He could have saved himself. Jesus chooses not to save himself so that he could save these very ones who are mocking him, so that he could save you. And then they put this inscription over him that read, this is the king of the Jews, which was typical public execution like this. They would put uh, the charge of, of what was brought against them, the crime above the person or near the person that was dying, being executed. Then one of the criminals in verse 39 Uh, who uh, were one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But then the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And like, look, we indeed justly, for, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now this man has changed his tune. You see, according to Matthew and Mark, it was moments earlier, both of these criminals were mocking Jesus. They both were blaspheming Jesus. They both were shouting at him, cursing at him. But now as death draws near, one asks for mercy. He says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says in response, no. You were just mocking me. Why would I ever do that? He says, truly I say to you, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. Friend, that is shocking grace. This man on the cross beside Jesus tells us a lot of things. 
One thing is that he tells us is it doesn't take much to go to heaven. It just takes faith. This man hadn't given a dime as a tithe, never offered up probably anything as a sacrifice at the temple. He hadn't given up secular music and only listened to Christian music. He hadn't cleaned up his language. I mean, it was probably just minutes ago he was cursing Jesus. He'd probably never gone to church, never gotten baptized, never taken communion. He would not be known as a religious person. But this man had faith that Jesus might be able to save him. And he asked him to. This man is there hanging on a cross, owning nothing but his flesh and his shame and mercy. And that was enough. This is a picture of the person trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like the song we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This should be every Christian. If we could see him there on the cross, he would be holding a little mustard seed. And that's all he had, a mustard seed of faith. But that was enough. That was enough. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed in the middle of the day, dark. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now here, God is still in such total control. Things were working perfectly according to his sovereign will. This was perfect timing. Though this is by far the worst moment in the history of the world, God is still in perfect control. You see, the sixth hour is the exact time. They didn't just start the, the whole Passover event at a random time. They started at a specific time. The sixth hour is the exact time when the priest would begin to kill and slaughter and sacrifice lambs, allowing their blood to spill over the altar, celebrating and remembering the Passover, the Exodus from Egypt. You might remember the children of Israel were held in Egyptian bondage and Pharaoh would not relent. He would not let them go. God, in the Old Testament, remember, sends all these plagues, locusts, frogs, water turned to blood, and so forth. The final plague was the death of the firstborn in every home. This judgment will come sweeping through the land, killing the firstborn in every home. But for those who would take a lamb and slaughter it and take its blood and pour, put it over the doorpost of their door, of their home, the angel of judgment would come to that house and pass over that home, not judging them, but seeing the lamb and its death as an act of faith in God and his goodness and pass over because the death of that animal, that sacrifice, and then would go on to the next home. That's why they call it Passover. Jesus, in this moment, hanging there on this tree, spanning himself between heaven and earth is the sacrificial spotless lamb of God taking away the sin of the world 
while he is being beaten and slaughtered and bleeding, his blood covering out and pouring out, atoning for our sin, bringing about the wonderful and much greater exodus. The intentionality and detail of God in the death of Jesus when he could have been slaughtered at any other day, but on Passover, on any other time, but at the sixth hour. Radical providence, amazing sovereignty. Himself, Jesus, is the ultimate Passover lamb. He wasn't just killed. He wasn't just executed. He laid down his life when the time was right. My time is not yet ready. My time is not yet now. My time is not yet now. He embraces it knowing exactly the time that he will be crucified. He gave his life as a ransom at the perfect time. And then the curtain is torn in two. This symbolically represents the spirit of God that was previously held back and limited to just the holy of holies within the temple there. Behind this curtain. But now it's released. The Spirit of God is released to live not in tents made by hands, but in the hearts of all those who call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior to be saved from their sin. Then Jesus, in verse 46, calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus is obedient to the very end. He gives up his spirit so that you could receive it. He said in John 10, 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Speaking of the resurrection, this charge I have received from my father. The work of Christ was accomplished. It is finished. Everything has been taken care of. At age 12, you remember, his parents lost him, which would have been an awful thing to experience losing your son Jesus. <laughs> but they find him in the temple, and you remember what he did? He said, I must be about my father's business. Well, now here, he's completed his father's business, and it's finished. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place in verse 47, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was perfect. He was innocent. What a remarkable firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus. An exact quotation from a man who nailed Jesus to the wooden cross, who was there to arrest him in the garden the previous night. Then verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, which is a sign of grief and disappointment and woe. You might remember back to Luke 18, where you had the Pharisee who was praying, God, thank you that I'm not like this poor man. Thank you that I'm so good. Thank you for the gift that I am to all these people. Thank you for making such a beautiful spectacle of creation in me. And then off to the side, there was the tax collector standing far off, Luke 18, 13. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They go home beating their breast in woe. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph in verse 50, from the Jewish town of Arimathea, 
He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and action to crucify Jesus. But he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, the Roman overseer, and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, this isn't Joseph, the earthly daddy of Jesus, his stepdad. This is Joseph of Arimathea. He was a disciple and follower of Jesus. And we learn about him in Mark 15, where it says, though he wasn't a follower publicly for fear of the Jews, but here Joseph takes courage and goes into the very presence of the Roman overseer, Pilate, the governor, and asks for the body of Jesus, a very risky move, but speaks to the change in his heart and who he saw Jesus as and his heart in following him. In verse 53, he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Now, there were about a thousand of these tombs back in the day of Christ, a, a, a hole like this that you would, call, that you would take a, a stone and roll it in front of the hole in the opening. They were very expensive and fairly rare. And this is believed to be for Joseph and his family, but he gives it up to Jesus. Verse 54, it was a day of preparation, a specific day, and the Sabbath was beginning. So the day of preparation of Passover week was Friday. The Sabbath following it was special because it was the Sabbath of Passover week, the most sacred week, most sacred day of the most sacred week of the Jewish calendar. Now, the Jews want these three bodies taken down as soon as possible because they have a law that says that they cannot leave a body on a cross overnight, much less during a Sabbath, much less the Sabbath of Passover week. Romans didn't have this rule. They would leave them up there until the vultures would come and eat all the flesh off the carcass and the bones would eventually drop to the ground. They would burn the bones and, you know, you see all this heap of smoke coming up. I just continue to torment anyone who ever knew that person that was dying. But the Israelites, the Jews, the Jewish people did not have such laws. They were required to get the body off the tree as quickly as possible because they thought that if a, if a body were to stay on the cross overnight, it would defile the land. So for this and many other reasons, they wanted these three bodies removed before dark. So Joseph and a friend, Nicodemus, they both come to, to Jesus and remove him from the cross and wrap him in this linen cloth, this shroud, right? That was an item of luxury. Common people didn't have this. I mean, this cost Nicodemus and Joseph, if they split the cost, it cost them collectively uh, somewhere around $200,000 for this whole thing to take place from removing Jesus from the cross, transporting him, buying the spices, all the herbs, the, the tomb, uh, all the livestock it would take, to, to move all this, uh, it was a significant event. Verse 55, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now, what a wicked, wicked day. But what a wonderful, wonderful day. Do you see what's going on here with Jesus on this cross, dying in this way? Well, it's, it's God carrying out his plan using wicked, sinful hands of men to accomplish 
his plan. God is in the business of using evil for good and his glory. And here's the ultimate picture of this. Like we read yesterday in our, in our Axis reading in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 2, our God turned the curse into a blessing. If God can bring good out of the death of God, the worst day ever, then, God can, then, then good can come out of anything that you're facing. Anything that you're facing. If good can come from the cross, from the death of God, anything you're facing, there can be good come from. It's not wasted. So there's hope. But do you, do you see what's really going on here? So Satan is trying to kill Jesus, and God is using the death of Jesus to kill Satan. Do you see this? And to kill sin and to kill death. That should give us such hope in just the, the power and the providence of God. Like the darkest hour, literally going dark for three hours. And imagine the enemy thinking, yes, we got him. Yes, death is strong. Yes. But we know what happens not three hours later as things lighten up. We know that three days later, light of the world, the author of life, defeats death. Nothing's going to stop God's power. Nothing. Nothing's going to stop God's plan. Nothing. Satan sees this as the end of hope and the end of life. But God and Jesus, they see this as the beginning of hope and the beginning of life forever. But do you really see what's going on here? Consider Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our sins and transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and our sins. And upon him was the chastisement and judgment and condemnation that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you see what's going on here? 1 Peter 2, 24 says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. He was wounded so that you could be healed. He was rejected so that you could be received. He died so that you could live. And his act is what justifies us. This is what had to happen for us to be restored back into friendship with God, our faithful, faithful creator and our good father. But do you see what's going on here? You remember back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they sin, they rebel. They choose to do their own thing in their own way. And God judges them for their sin. But in the midst of this, he, God slaughters an animal. The very first sacrifice took place in the Garden of Eden. God slaughters an animal in order to provide coverings, not fig leaves, which is our self-righteous attempt, but instead flesh and blood dying in order to cover the shame and sin of Adam and Eve. And as Jesus hung there, the final Hebrew says, once and for all sacrifice, for all time, for all of God's people. As he hung there as the final sacrifice, naked and slaughtered, his blood pouring out from his body, he was hanging there dying, covering your shame. And he was atoning for your sin. Just as God killed an animal to cover the shame and sin of Adam and Eve, here on the cross, Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary, God is killing his own son, slaughtering his own son, exposing his son, 
His son is there ashamed and naked, but he's covering and erasing the shame and sin of his people. He wasn't just physically suffering. He wasn't just publicly dying. This was perfect God. This was perfect God in the flesh, suffering and dying so that you wouldn't have to. That's what's going on. This is perfect, holy God receiving God's wrath upon himself so you don't have to. This was perfect, holy God hanging in your place, dying so that you don't have to. Do you see it? All the wrath for every cumulative sin that's ever been committed or ever will be committed by every person that has been saved or ever will be saved, all this punishment, all this wrath, every bit of it, owned by Christ, he is shouldering it there for you so you don't have to. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He made us righteous so that he could deliver us into the presence of God by becoming unrighteous for us, by becoming sin for us. He was made our sin and we were made his righteousness. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you see it this way? Do you trust Jesus this way? Are you resting in what Jesus accomplished for you here? Or are you working really, really, really hard trying to prove your own righteousness yourself? Are you believing the gospel or are you working religion? Without the cross of Jesus, his death in our place, we'd still rightfully be terrified of God. Terrified. We'd still rightfully be thinking, I've messed up, my dad's gonna kill me. But because of Jesus, his death in our place, we can now live this out. We can now believe this. We can think this, I messed up. I need to call dad. The way that you picture God looking at you in the midst of your sin that so easily entangles you and frustrates you, the way that you imagine God looking at you in your sin tells you a lot about what you believe or don't believe about Jesus' work for you. And many of us treat God like we did our own dads. I messed up, so I'm going to go to make my bed. I'm going to go cut the grass. I'm going to go wash the car. So when he finds out what I did, he won't be as mad. I'm going to go read a devotional. I'm going to show up to church every week this month. I'm going to go volunteer. I'm going to so that he'll cool off a little bit and maybe answer my prayer. This is not resting. This is working. That's the opposite of Christianity. That's the opposite of the gospel. You're trying to earn your righteousness. You're not believing what Christ has accomplished for you. You're not living. You're not living in experiencing the fruit of the cross. Because the work of Christ 
has been applied to our hearts. We now don't have to fear him as we stand condemned before the throne, judgment throne of God. Rather, this judgment throne of God, because the finished work of Christ has been turned into a throne of grace. Where once we'll be overwhelmed by all that we've done wrong and judged, condemned, sentenced to a life of judgment away from God and all that's good. Instead, we can now, like Hebrews 4.16 says, we can now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, man, if you want to write a verse out, Hebrews 4.16, write that out and think about that verse. There used to be, for you, Christian, a throne of judgment. But by faith in Christ, that throne of judgment that gives out judgment has now been converted by Christ to be a throne of grace so that in your moment of need, you're not sentenced and judged. Instead, you're given grace. It's grace in your time of need, not when you don't need it. It's when you need it. It's when you screwed up really bad. All right, you messed up big time. Here's grace. You know what's coming your way. You really messed up big time. You need extra grace today. Cause of Christ. See, through the cross, God steps into your situation and He takes your place. He didn't come to judge you, He came to be judged for you. And the result is that it's taken care of so that you're now at peace with God, like right now. Friend, look at how much God loves you. Look at the cross and know that He loves you. He sent His Son to be judged as you and to die for you. He loves you. This speaks to your identity, your worth, your value, your significance. If you've ever wondered if you mattered for a second, you look to the cross. Do you see what he did to save you and adopt you into his family? My friends who aren't Christians yet that are here with us, you've got to see Jesus right here. You've got to look at him. He's dying for you. Believe that he did this for you and tell him right now. Just, just tell him in your heart to say, remember me. Remember me. And you'll be with him in paradise. I mean, you're so bad, God had to die for you. That's how bad you are. But you're so loved, he was glad to do it. And for those who don't believe Jesus, call out to him for faith. Like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like the thief on the cross, remember me. Christian, here is your worth. Look at the cross. Here's your value. Draw your significance from Jesus Christ on the cross and what God thinks about you, how God values you. Look at what he did for you. Here's where you draw your identity from. Here's where you draw your significance from. Not a spouse, not your husband, not your wife, not your boyfriend or girlfriend, not whether your roommate appreciated what you did or, or that they're angry with you or, and your, your significance and your value and your worth is based upon how they respond, how they react. That is wrong to put your, the weight of your significance and value on another person. Their shoulders can't handle it. It makes them crumble. Only Christ can shoulder the weight of your identity. Only Christ can shoulder the weight of your value and significance. And to try to find that only through a spouse is 
the, the weight's unbearable and it's not fair. Don't find it from a hobby. Don't find your significance in a hobby. Don't find it in your income. Don't find it in your education. Don't find it in a position. Find it in Christ. And I want to end with a, uh, a reading from Charles Spurgeon that my wife Jill found on June 18th this past week from his book, Morning by Morning. Uh, the date is June 18th. This is from Pastor Charles Spurgeon. He writes about the work of Christ. It says this, he gives us his manger. Jesus gives us his manger that we may learn how God came down to man. His cross teaches us how man may go up to God. All his thoughts, his emotions, his actions, his utterances, his miracles, and his intercessions were for us. He trod the road of sorrow on our behalf and has given us as his heavenly legacy the full results of all the labors of his life. Oh, my soul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, call him your redeemer this morning. And I believe he wrote that speaking to himself. This is what happy Christians do. They preach to themselves these truths. He's not thinking mainly about you. He recorded his prayer so that you might know that he, how he prayed. But I believe this is him in coaching his own heart. Oh, my soul. By the power of the Holy Spirit, call him your redeemer this morning and nothing else, no one else. And this is what I encourage you to do in light of the cross, in light of what we've just read that Jesus endured for you in your place, call him your redeemer. That's what he was doing. This is how much you're loved. And now family, we get to come and remember this specific day, this moment, this event as we come and to take communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper this morning. For those who are at home, if it's like my family a few weeks ago, it's tortillas and orange juice. But for those of us that are here, we've got little cups and they're on tables back to back. They're, on, they're kind of all around. And you'll take this cup and there's, there's two layers to it. Okay, the first layer reveals the wafer. The second opens up the, the liquid, the red juice. Now, what this represents is what we just read in Luke chapter 23. As you peel back that top layer and you find that wafer, friend, that is symbolic of the perfect life and body of Christ for us. As you peel back that second layer, revealing that juice, it is a symbol of the blood of Christ that covers your sin and your shame and presents you holy and blameless and above reproach before God Almighty forever. We're remembering what Christ accomplished on the cross by coming and taking this. So as you come, please remember. Please focus on what Christ did for you. Know that you're loved and know that good can come from anything if good can come from the death of God. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you.
for sending your son to us. And I'm thankful yet sorrowful for what he had to endure because of us. We remember your son's work on our behalf, knowing that this is what makes us righteous. This is what delivers us into your presence forever. This is what makes us good enough. Not merely taking something through religious activity, but by what it symbolizes and the posture of our hearts and the belief in our hearts of who you are and what you've accomplished. Lord, let our hearts press into what you endured for us there on the cross and would it induce worship? Would, would this activity induce thankfulness? Would it induce gratitude and humility and joy and courage? Lord, help us believe the gospel. Help us believe anew and afresh the gospel of what you have done for us so that we could be with you forever. God, help my friends who aren't Christians this morning. Lord, help them call out to you for you to remember them, for you to give them mercy as we remember you. In Christ's name I pray, asking you to add your special blessing on this time. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.